All right, we're in Genesis 22 to kind of, um, this is the gripping, climactic conclusion of Abraham's story. And to kind of, if you're not familiar with the story in Genesis 12, God calls this random idolater who doesn't know him out of nowhere and says, your name's Abram, I'm calling you out of your land, away from your family, taking you to a land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation and bless the world with you. It's through Abram, who is now Abraham, that God begins his work of fixing everything that's wrong with the world. And it all hinged on Abraham becoming a great nation. Namely, the first thing that has to happen is he has a child. It hasn't happened for over 90 years, and finally it happens after a century, actually, of waiting on Abraham's part. And he has Isaac, who is the promised heir, through whom God will bless the world um, through whom God will actually fix everything. And to kind of give you a sense of where he is, have you ever, of kind of where the story goes, have you ever had something that you wanted so bad and for so long, and you finally got it, and then all of a sudden there's the threat of losing it? We're like, everything's finally coming together and it's all right, and now, my gosh, it's getting torn out of your fingers. For 17 years... I endured mediocrity as an Alabama fan, which to y'all sounds like a short time, I realize, but for an Alabama fan, that's a long time. Um, So this past January, finally, 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 after almost two decades of waiting, they make it back to the national championship game. Elizabeth and I think, okay, let's do it one time. Let's go. Let's fly to Pasadena. We drive to Charlotte. We get on the plane to Charlotte. And uh, just to kind of stick it to Josh Redwine, I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> Where they're doing all the announcements and everything, and they're telling us to turn off our cell phones, which reminds me of, hey, cell phones. So instead of turning mine off, I get it out and turn it back on. I said, I've got to tell everybody on Facebook, my Facebook status update, that I'm going to the national championship, that I'm on the plane. And um, so I pull it out, and I don't know what was going on in the life of this stewardess this day, but um, it's something deep and horrible. <laughs> And uh, she goes, excuse me. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm updating Facebook. <laughs> and she goes, do you think you're special? I said, no, I'm not. I'm turning it off. I'm so sorry. And she goes, because, and literally, I'd said sorry twice at this point. She goes, because if you think you're special, special people don't fly on this airline. <laughs> and I go, I am so sorry. It is off. It is in my pocket. I will never turn it on again. <laughs> And she goes, do you think you're above the rules? And I was like, I, I really, ma'am, it's off. I'm sorry. And she goes, if you think you're above the rules, you're not flying with us today. I'm telling you, like, the whole section of the plane was getting unnerved at this point. And actually, the way the situation got diffused is several other flyers around us were like, ma'am, it's okay. He's turned it off. And, like, for that brief moment, I thought my 17 years of frustration and then finally, my dream, my idol was finally going to serve me well. And I thought it was going to be ripped away from me from the tarmac on Charlotte in Charlotte on the airport there. And I was not going to make it to Pasadena. I thought she was kicking me off the flight. That's a humorous way of saying that's where Abraham is. <laughs> so let's read Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, uh, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. The angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, your words give life, they give light, they give wisdom, they speak into our life um, powerfully. I pray now that you would attend to them with your Holy Spirit. I pray now that you would call to mind all the things we hold on to so tightly. And you would call to mind all the anxieties that weigh heavy on us, all the things that are important to us. And now as we consider your word, dear Lord, we consider your word and let the full light of your word and the full power of your Holy Spirit work in and on who we are. In your name we pray, amen. My question for tonight that I want to address and that this passage addresses for us is really this. Do you have a theology that says God is both sovereign and good? And in some account, we all have a theology. We've articulated it maybe in a small group Bible study, maybe talking with friends. You're vaguely aware and we all affirm that God is powerful, maybe even sovereign, and yet also God is good. But my question is actually, do you have a practical or a functional theology that God is both sovereign, He's all-powerful, and that he's good. Do you have a theology that says God is sovereign and God is good when people contract cancer? Do you have a theology that, some, that says God is both sovereign and God is both good when people go on all throughout life lonely, without a spouse? And that's what I want us to grapple with tonight because we can talk about it in our small groups, but I actually want us to wrestle with daily life in the daily trials and the daily tests and the daily calls to obedience that we all face all the time, every day, and ask this question. Okay, God's sovereign over these events, but is He really good? And I want us to grapple with that. Does your theology include a God that's actually so committed to you that He'll actually take away good things when they obscure your vision 
of Him. And what I want us to see tonight is that the testing of God through trials and through difficulties are actually one of His highest expressions of love. That the testing of God through trials and difficulties are actually one of the highest expressions of His love. And not only is it actually, it's not very hard to reconcile the difficulty and suffering of tests and trials. In fact, it actually makes sense that a loving and all-sufficient God who desires that His people see and know and live as if He's all-sufficient and He is really enough, it only makes sense that He actually would mercifully, providentially, in His goodness, provide our lives with trials and tests so that we would more tightly cling to Him. Trials, given by God, this test is not an expression of his displeasure. And a lot of times that's the way, brothers and sisters, that we interpret them. If you're in Christ, the trials and the tests that Jesus gives to you are not an expression and not a punishment of his displeasure or his anger. They're not at all. They're an expression actually of his love. The testing of God through trials and difficulties are are one of the highest expressions of his love. And what I just want to see tonight is that the testing both reveals our heart, and it refines our faith. Those are the two points. Testing and the trials from God, they reveal our hearts, and they also refine our faith. What's happening in this passage, after these things God tested Abraham, Abraham's being called to account as to whether or not he really trusts God. He's being called into a difficult circumstance and saying, all right, do you trust me here? If in his heart, if he really believes God is good, that God is sovereign, that God keeps his promises to his people, because Isaac was the one through whom God was going to save the world. And yet right now, right, from Abraham's mindset, God, you said you would bless the world through Isaac, but you're calling him to sacrifice him. Is he going to listen? Can he trust God? And you see, it begins with the after these things. And that calls to mind everything we've considered so far this semester about Abraham. All the different encounters where God called him and Abraham follows him. Where Abraham becomes faithless and delivers his wife up to sleep with the Pharaoh. When Abraham fights again on behalf of God and then Abraham becomes faithless again and stops trusting God to give him an heir. So he sleeps with his housekeeper to have a son. And Abraham's saying, I fell and I got back up and you called me out and you're faithful and we've been through decades of this together, God. And after all these things, after all these things, God says, and he, Isaac is there. The, the promise is fulfilled. God calls him and he says, here I am. And God says, take your son, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him as a burnt offering on the mountains, which I shall tell you. After, after all these things, God, Isaac, Isaac, after all these things, Abraham's undergoing test. There are people in this room that have undergone trials, and we're all going to undergo deep trials. This trial, more than likely, is going to make everything we go through in life pale in comparison. Because God has not said, here's what I ask of you, Abraham. I want you to try to go to church most of the time, right? Man, I wish, Abraham, that you would read your Bible more. That's my test of your faithfulness. Will you read your Bible more? Will you pray more? God is not saying, just a little bit of something here. I I want you to give some more money away, devotional time. God has said, Isaac, 
Everything you've longed for for 100 years, that's what I want. I want that. The things you've been longing for, that you've been weeping for, that you've been crying for, the one that was supposed to be the beginning of the great nation and the salvation of the world. And what he's saying is, you, I want you, I want all that is you, everything that you're wrapped up in. Abraham cared far more for Isaac than he did for his own life. The fourfold comment when he says, take your son... Isaac's referred to four different ways. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, is reinforcing the significance of Isaac and Abraham's life. This test struck deep into the heart of who he was. God's test to him is, I'm not asking you to do some little stuff. I want your everything. And verse 3 kind of tells us how unnerved he is. Abraham rose early in the morning. And notice the sequence of how he prepares for the trip. Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, and then he cuts wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place. Every commentator comments like, why does he cut the wood for the offering after packing everything up? And what they mostly suggest is he's so disoriented by this command by how deep and how far and how personal it goes into the heart of his being that he doesn't want to know, and he's literally scrambling and disoriented. It actually immediately made me think of a couple of weeks ago, Catherine, uh, our little three-year-old, fell on the patio outside, and we didn't know it. And she busted her head open. I don't want to make the story dramatic. She's safe. Um, But it's going to sound dramatic for a second. She got three stitches in her forehead, but she fell, and we didn't know how long she was lying there because we came outside, and she was literally still lying on the patio, and heads bleed a lot. And uh, there's literally a pool of blood going down the stairs on the patio. And we panicked. She's okay. She's okay. Just, but I had no idea what to do. I just scooped her up and just ran upstairs. I had no idea what to do. I literally, my decision making didn't make any sense at this point. This is Abraham at this moment. He's packing his mule. He's getting everybody ready. And then all of a sudden he's going to cut wood. He's disoriented because it struck so deeply into who he was because what's being asked of Abraham is everything. The call to obedience is this. It is God saying, do you trust me? When God's word comes into our life, the call to obedience is actually this. It's God saying, do you trust me? And it's not just, do you trust me with the little things? Like, way to go, you woke up for your 8 o'clock class, you know? Oh, you went to more classes this semester, you know? <laughs> you read your Bible more, you went to church more. God's not saying, His call is not, do you trust God with the little things, are you doing a little bit better? His call is, I want everything. And this is what we have to see, and this is really actually the theme of the whole semester. Obedience is not a measure of your determination. Obedience is not a measure of your determination. Obedience, I've said this before, it's not an effort problem. Obedience is not an effort problem. Obedience is a measure of what you think of God. Obedience is actually a measure of whether or not we trust God. Because when you ask somebody to do something for you, right? This is God making command. When you ask someone to do something for you, to put a bill in the mail for you, to fill up your car with gas, to pay for something, whatever it is, when they don't do it, you never think, oh, they didn't try hard enough. Right? You think, they didn't respect me. 
right? And yet somehow we think that the way God looks at it when he asks us to do something and then we don't do it, that he's up there thinking, oh, oh, they just didn't try hard enough. The call to obedience is not a call to effort. It's a call to trust. It's a call to respect. When you ask somebody to do something for you, they don't do it for lack of effort. They do it for lack of respect. We feel this all the time in all of our relationships. God asks calls and tests Abram not to see if he can work hard enough, but merely he tests him to see if he trusts God. When God's commands come to us, it is a test of our heart, and it's a test actually of what we truly think of God. And his testing can come in, the for- in two different forms. Here we see them kind of come together. It can come in the form of trials in life, and it can come in the form of commands. Those are both forms of test. And in Abraham's episode, we see both. It is a command to actually endure a trial, right? But in our lives, it can be either one of those. God's testing may be the removal of good things in your life. We see this actually in Job. At the beginning of Job, the Lord and Satan are having this conversation. And the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright and fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and says this, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, meaning take it away, and he will curse you to your face. Sometimes God's good providence, sometimes testing comes in the form of taking away good things. And that's what happens with Job. God allows Satan to take everything good away from Job to see if his faith still remains. And when good things are removed from us, usually we actually see our hearts what they really are, that we are merely trusting God for some, for some kind of um, you know, local promises we wanted, boyfriend, girlfriend, friends, job, whatever it is, grades. And the height of our sin, and this is the way it's described in Romans, is when our heart attaches itself to the gifts instead of the gift giver, when our heart finds its sauce and its security and its peace in good gifts instead of the gift giver. And the gift giver, the Lord, if He is loving, He actually removes the gifts for us so they would stop, so the gifts would stop cluttering and blocking our vision of Him. Uh, My aunt married a wonderful Christian man several years ago. Um, His name was Ken Sibley, and he was a man who loved Jesus And wherever he went, people loved Jesus. They didn't talk about how great Ken was, but wherever he went when he left there, they talked about how great Jesus was. He was the best kind of Christian, and I mean that in the best possible way. Just two years into their marriage, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And if you're not familiar with it, the the short definition is your body takes about three to six years to die. Life is a good thing. Sometimes even good things are taken away from us to test our faith. And the truth of the matter is at the end of Ken's life, you know what? It was revealed that he was someone who found peace and solace and riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a sweet death. It was bitter, but it was a sweet death. Our reputation, right? What are the things, what are the good things in our life? Whether through events beyond your control, slander, 
rumors about something, you find out that people's opinions of you change. <coughs> and at that moment, you find out if your social confidence was actually in everybody else's thoughts about you or God's thoughts about you, right? Health, like Ken, illness, brokenness. We're finding out right now if John O'Neill's security is in volleyball or Jesus. <laughs> He's doing well, just so you know. I'm not picking on him. But God removes health to find out if our identity is in our body or in His resurrection body. And this is one we all need to get because I'll go ahead and tell you, guess what? We're all not going to look great in our 70s. Sorry, but your body's failing. Are you prepared for that? Or is the prospect of your spouse's body failing and growing old strike fear in you? That reveals a lot, doesn't it? Reveals that your identity is not in the resurrection of Jesus, but it's just simply worldly image. Relationships, right? We lose relationships. <coughs> Especially a romantic relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and it wears on your soul and it feels like death for months afterwards. And maybe God's what He's showing you is that in fact this relationship was an idol. That your meaning was in that person and not in Jesus. God's testing can come in the form of actually removing good things. It can also come in the form of commands, which again, it does both here with Abraham. For all of us, here's one of his commands we don't like. You're called to be a light to the world, to make King Jesus known everywhere that you go at all times. That includes the marble slab, and that includes class tomorrow and volleyball and whatever it is you're doing every minute of every day. Your friendships with unbelievers. You're called to make King Jesus known. And when in fact, in those settings, you never give a lick about who Jesus is, it reveals both what you think of the King and also whether or not you actually love your unbelieving friends and that we also think lowly of the cross. So that test reveals a lot, the way we choose to respond to God's command. Other things, everybody in here, all of us, have hidden, half-confessed, kind of vaguely mentioned, mostly distorted the nature of our sexual immorality. We're all giving people a glimmer of it, maybe, for the most part. And whether it's, whether it's internet pornography, whether it's lighter forms of porn on TV, and so it's better and you can justify it and watch it with other people, or it's the sexual relationship you have with someone that you have no right to be involved with sexually, which is anyone who's not your spouse... And what the Lord calls you to right now is that. He's saying, I want your sexual purity, all of it, right now. And your response to the call to sexual purity reveals whether or not you think God's an idiot when He talks about sex. See, our obedience is always a trust problem. It's not an effort problem. It reveals whether or not we think God knows what He's talking about, whether or not we trust Him. Money. Y'all are college students. You have no money. The prospect of actually giving money to Jesus seems completely unreasonable because you might not eat next week, right? That reveals how closely and tightly attached to it we are. Because when Jesus gives us, tells us to give money away, we have great reasons to not do it. This is the point, and this is what God's showing us in the test of Abraham. God is a jealous God. He wants everything. And maybe this is a scary thing about Christianity. You got into this thing because the forgiveness of sins is appealing and it is true and it is sweet and it is good 
And it is the heart of the gospel. But if the Holy Spirit has taken hold of you, if you've come to faith, then he's going to go into all of your life, into all of the corners you don't want to give him, into every part of your life, every part of your day, every part of your calendar. And he's going to say, this is all mine. And you're no longer to give it to your idol of people-pleasing, to the idol of sexuality, to the idols of selfishness. And it will feel like death when God goes into the corners of our hearts that we don't want him to go into because that's the thing we want to hold on to. But see, we talk, we love when Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The perfecter of our faith is a scary statement because it says, I'm going into every ounce of your being and claiming all of that. And I'm going to make you deal with all of that. And I'm going to say, it's all mine. That's what it means that he is our perfecter. We like the author, but if you think about the perfecter very long, it means Jesus is going to take everything. God's testing reveals our hearts. And our response to his testing commands, it's not a measure of our strength or will or character determination. It's actually a measure of what we think about God. But he doesn't leave us there because testing actually also refines our faith. And see, in Abraham, for Abraham in verses 5 and 8, we begin to see some things. We actually begin to understand a little bit about why Abram could do what he was doing. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship. And your text doesn't reveal this, but that word come is actually, is actually um, first person plural. And we will come again to you. He's including Isaac. Verse 8, uh, after Isaac says, Behold, I see the fire in the wood, Dad, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The reason Abraham did this is because he trusted God. You see, it wasn't effort. It was trust. It was the past faithfulness of God. And actually what we understand from Hebrews eleven nineteen is that the, this is what Abraham thought at the mind. This is actually according to Scripture. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who he had received the promises, and was in an act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your, shall your offspring be named. He considered God, that God was even able to raise him from the dead. Abraham went with the full intention of sacrificing his son, and he just thought, you know what? God's been faithful for decades I guess he's just going to raise Isaac from the dead. You know, this is the point of the whole semester. God calls all of us into conformity to his will, that he calls us to obedience, to obey him with everything that we have, and to serve his kingdom with every minute of our day, with every decision to be made in light of his glory, that his name is the name that is known when we go anywhere and not our own name, wherever you go. Every step you take from this room on, not just in your Jesus moments, right? This is the theme of the semester. The ability to do that has nothing to do with the strength of your own will. The ability to do that has nothing to do with the strength of your own will. It has everything to do with whether or not you find God to be trustworthy. Obedience. It's not an effort issue. It's a trust issue. Again, when you ask 
a HeartWorks kid, when you ask a camper, a young life student to do a favor for you and they don't, you don't think, they didn't do it because they didn't try hard enough. You think, they didn't do it because they don't listen to me, they don't trust me, they don't respect me. Abraham went up there having no idea what would happen, wondering what the consequences would be. He thought God was just going to raise Isaac from the dead and he went because for years he had seen God be faithful. He had seen God provide over and over and over. He went not because Abraham is a beacon of moral righteousness. Y'all, we wouldn't let Abraham join any of our churches. He wouldn't be admitted to First Pres or Midtown. Nobody can claim higher ground on this one. He had his wife sleep with the Pharaoh, and guess what? It's not this first, it's going to happen again after this, that he's going to have his wife do that. He had a kid by his housekeeper. If we announced his story at First Pres or Midtown on Sunday and said, we're having a guy come and let us tell you about who he is, he's going to preach this afternoon, both churches would empty. Abraham went because God was faithful, not because Abraham's a great guy. And Abraham went to the mountain, and here's a side note, telling some people about this beforehand. Mountaintops in the Bible are not happy places. This whole mountaintop experience, I'm not sure where the language came from, and I'm all for happy, happy, clappy, like we love Jesus, warm fuzzies. I'm for that. We have that all the time. We got to choose a better word because mountaintop experience isn't exactly biblical. <laughs> this is Abraham's mountaintop experience. Go and sacrifice your son. The temple is put on a temple mount. It is a bloody place where people are reminded over and over again that death is required for what they've done. Jesus' mountaintop experience was such an awful prospect that he actually prayed and asked God to not have to go to it. Let's find a new word for when you're happy about who Jesus is because mountaintop experience ain't biblical. But God's beginning to understand Abraham and through this passage we're beginning to understand what happened at those mountaintops because at the beginning of the passage God actually tells him the kind of sacrifice take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love and offer him there as a burnt offering. If you turn to Leviticus burnt offerings one of the first offerings talked about. A burnt offering is a sacrifice of atonement for things like that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Isaac was going up there to be a sacrifice for atonement. You've got to see that although God's command seems extreme here, God's doing something he actually had a right to do. He is actually telling Isaac, he's actually telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and he's calling in his debts on Abraham for all of Abraham's sin and unbelief. All his faithfulness, it wasn't going to go unpunished. God is just. He punishes sin. Having his wife sleep with Hero, having his a housekeeper, uh, having his kid by his housekeeper, he and Sarah actually laugh at God on occasion and mock him. There are only a few ways that we see Abraham's sin. The burnt offering is God saying, and being within his rights, now... You must make a blood offering to make atonement for your sins. And you've got to know this. We're Americans. We're individualists. We have a hard time understanding with how we identify with groups of people. But in the ancient Near East, the firstborn is the symbol of the family. The firstborn son actually is the family. 
God would consecrate the firstborn of every family in Israel, there would be sacrifices specifically on behalf of the firstborn. One of the ways that God said that all of Israel was his was by him saying the firstborn of Israel was his. The firstborn was a representative for the whole family. And now he's calling to account the debts that Abraham incurred by his sin and unbelief. And he's saying what it costs is it costs your firstborn, your everything. Abram's actually tested because of his sin. Isaac is actually required because of Abraham's sin. It's not just this arbitrary demand for sacrifice. It's a demand for a burnt offering. It's a demand for atonement. And so you get verses 9 and 10. They came to the place which God had told him. Abram built the altar. And he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top. And Abram reached out his hand and you can see the scene the text actually slows down and zooms in. Abram reached out his hand and he took out his knife to slaughter his son and the angel of the Lord stops him. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him for, you, for I now know that you fear God seeing you haven't withheld anything. You haven't withheld your son, your only son from me. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold behind him was a ram. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide and it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God had a right to the blood of the family of Abraham and he provided a substitute. Does that sound familiar? The mount was called Moriah. And it's the place that hundreds of years later Solomon would actually build the temple where temple sacrifice would take place. And those sacrifices, they were bulls, they were lambs, and they were substitutes for the people of God. The lambs were killed in the place of Israel. And what they would do is those sacrifices would prefigure and prepare Israel to understand when the true firstborn, the once and for all sacrificial lamb, the Lamb of God who had come away to take away the sin of the world would come and be a death substitute for the sins of His family. That's Jesus. Do you see that in the test, God provides the answer? God shows Himself to be faithful, to be enough, to provide, to make a substitute that when all this life is stripped away, and you know what? For all of us, it is going to be stripped away someday. Jesus is still enough. Do you see that the key to great faith is not effort, it's just gazing at the cross. It's not effort, it's actually just gazing at the cross. The key to great faith is not, all right, today, this year, I'm going to be better, I'm going to do better. It's just seeing that Jesus was perfect for you. The key to great faith is not looking at and evaluate and tweaking and trying to improve and reading the next book that's going to give you more points with formulas for becoming a better person. It is looking at the cross. This is why in RUF we don't sing a lot of I will, I will always songs. Because you know what? I won't always. Those songs kill me. My only hope is to cast my gaze upon the cross and see there God gave a substitute for me. The lamb who died in my place. If you're like me, we grew up in, most of us have grown up in the South. You've made a commitment, right? You made a recommitment sometime because 
You weren't sure if the first commitment stuck, right? And then you have to recommit again because it's been a long time since your last recommitment. And so you recommitted your initial commitment, but then you also had to actually recommit your recommitment, right? So we could tally up these commitments after a while. And you know what? They always feel inadequate. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep doing it, right? Stop resting in your commitment. This is freedom, y'all. Stop resting in your commitment. Stop recommitting. Stop recommitting. Don't go and recommit again. Look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Look at the commitment of God on your behalf. Your answer is not recommitment. Your answer is the commitment of God. And you don't have to recommit that. When my children were going through the swimming throws, the big girls are doing well. The babies, not so much. They're very fearful of the water. They're actually very fearful of their own ability. They are scared to death of the pool and feel like they're going to die when they estimate, when they look at the surroundings around them and estimate their own ability. Do you know what removes fear, gives them faith and confidence to actually step out and do something? It's when I can get all of their focus on me. It's when they stop thinking about their own ability. It's when they stop staring at all the circumstances and they see my face. And to them, my arms are like, you know, they're not Jimmy Bachelman's arms, but to them, they're much better than Jimmy Bachelman's arms. Um, my arms are safe and secure. It's when they stare at me. It's when they say I'm their father. It's when they stare at my face. It's when they know they're safe with me that they start doing things. Do you see that their obedience, their actions are actually compelled by me? Not by their estimation and their own their estimation of their own abilities and not by their own efforts. We've got to stop being spiritual navel gazers, trying to fix our spiritual life and just look at Jesus. God demonstrates our own love for the uh, for us in this while we're still sinners. Jesus died for us when we were God's enemies. We were reconciled to him. Through the death of his son, this is the Lamb of God. So what is the application? Well, we'll get it straight from Scripture. In trials and in testing, James actually addresses it directly. Count it all joy. Not a little bit, not most of the time. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and, stead- and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Y'all are enduring trials. Life is difficult, it's hard, and maybe not many people in your life know how it's hard. Here's the ridiculousness of the Bible. Consider it joy. In a weird way, in the last two years, I've actually started thanking Jesus for the way he's afflicted y'all. Because I see it producing faith. Because I see Jesus taking away good things that were obstructing your view of Him. And those good things were sweet and they were good and they're bitter to lose, but they have become idols. And I'm so glad He's taken them away from some of y'all. Maybe your family, it's not perfect. It never was. It was always, it actually was always a sham, and now you know it. And now you know that you're believing a lot and praise God. Jesus, that through a trial and through testing, he revealed that your perfect world was a lie. 
Maybe your morality wasn't perfect. You were a good person in high school, but you got here and you found out you weren't. You've been fooling everybody up to this point, but through trial and through testing, you found out you have no control, and you're overwhelmed and you feel powerless. Praise Jesus that he destroyed your notion that you think you can overcome your sin. Maybe relationships have grown strained. You're not sure if people like you through friendships, through trial and testing. You're finding out that in all your efforts to be likable, you actually end up kind of not really knowing anybody. And maybe on, after a while, no one really might even care for you or know you or like you much because you're just kind of a vaguely pleasant person. Praise Jesus that he is showing you the emptiness to your approach to friendship. Maybe you've lost control. We've all lost control in different ways. You're finding that in circumstances that God has providentially and mercifully put around you, either they're circumstances, maybe they're even internal, praise God that He revealed to you what was in fact always true. You never had control. It was an illusion the whole time. God in His good providence tests His children, and not because He's mean, but actually precisely the opposite, because He's loving And he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He's a refining fire. And he's going to test, he's going to give you trials, and he's going to burn off the dross. And so when temptations come to bear, it's not going to be your strength and your will and your power that gets you through it. It's going to be Romans 8.32 that gets you through it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave his own son up for all of us, will he not also graciously give us all things? Him, he, he's the one that gets us through it. Who gave his son for us, he's the one that gets us through it. God's faithfulness is displayed in the death of the Lamb of God. And that is what enables us to trust, to have faith, to step out in obedience, and to worship. Let's pray.